1 John chapter 4. We're going to cover a large section of this chapter. Um, it's kind of the center of the book. There's a lot of repeated material which we need because we're forgetful. <laughs> and it's, it's good stuff. Um, I did want to share with you um, the most recent good news that I have on, on Steve. You know, a couple weeks ago we... We took a break from First John because there's just a lot to pray for here and in the world, and we did. We had a, a lovely and effective, it turns out, prayer meeting yeah. uh, that, that evening, which is great. Um, but it, it was definitely like a roller coaster. Like Steve was, there was one doctor that was saying that it was time to to say goodbyes, and then another doctor came in. And then now Steve's out of the hospital. He's going to physical therapy in the first bed that, that's there. So all of that, just like uh, emotions, uh, you know. And and so that is that is um, that's been well, and nothing short of uh, an answer to prayer. And the doctor said that Steve is a miracle. And we give Jesus the praise for that. Yes, we absolutely give give God glory for those things. Ed's here too. Today just gets better and better. Man, that's fantastic. He just Yeah. We're we're just we're just a durable church. That's what we are. Uh, I'm in first Peter. Let me try and rectify that. Um, do you guys remember where first John is? I need help finding it. First John chapter four. We're gonna start in verse seven, and we will be reading through to the end of the chapter. End of chapter four. Beloved, let us love one another. For God is of love, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God, God abides in Him and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Let us pray. Jesus, we love you only because you first loved us. Uh, we read here and we know we are called to love. We are told to be loving. And as, as 
your people as your hands and feet. We know that we need your spirit to empower us, to, to enable us to obey this, this call, this high call. Uh, give us understanding of these things that John wrote, but more than that, Lord, shape our hearts in such a way that we are eager to obey and able to obey. Um, let this be more than seeking understanding in, in an intellectual sense, but, but let this word, your inspired word, be a catalyst, be something that, that actually moves us to obey, to love. So we, we pray, God, uh, to you, the loving Father that we have, the one who is love, we pray, show us more love today, love us more, um, so that we can love more. We need you, and, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a large section. There's a lot in it, of course. Um, but a lot of this section is uh, repeated, or at least a rephrasing of things that we've already read in this book. And if it's not, then it's stuff that he's going to repeat in chapter 5. Um, so all of this should sound familiar by now, if you've been walking with us through First uh, John. In fact, as we continue in the second half of the letter, and even as we go into chapter 5, there's going to be a lot that feels like review, and that is good because we are forgetful people, and we need to be reminded of important things as often as we can. Um, you've probably heard maybe the, the, the story of the small country church that was in the process of finding a new pastor so they had different candidates come in and preach, and one of them came, a, a, a pastoral candidate came in and preached a great sermon, and the people loved it. They were, they were moved. They were cut to the quick. They hire him on the spot. The next week, it's his first real Sunday. You know, he comes in and he preaches the same sermon, raised some eyebrows, but they figure, well, maybe some people weren't here last week. I don't know. Uh, they didn't say anything. Uh, the week after that, he preached the same sermon. And uh, the following week, he preached the same sermon, and finally the elders or deacons or whatever they had at this, this poor church, uh, they address the guy and they say, hey, what, what's the deal? Can't, do, you have, do you have anything else? Do you, do you want to preach on anything else? And the pastor said, when you start obeying this one, we'll move on. And, and I think, I mean, I, that's kind of what it feels like in First John, though. Like, we're, we're teaching love each other. And next week, like, sorry to break it to you. I don't know if, like, I need a spoiler alert here. But for the rest of John, we're going to be like, yeah, you, you just got to love each other. And then we're going to be done with First John. And we'll go, okay, something else. And we'll do Second John. And there's one point in the whole book, and it's love each other. And that's what we've got cut out for us. So the first time John tells his little children, his flock, his church, you know, they, that they need to love each other. Uh, they probably nod their heads, and the first time we read it, you know, we get convicted. We're like, yeah, that's really, oh man, that's something I need to do. We listen to what he says. We compare it with the many, many other passages where Jesus and the apostles tell us that we need to love each other. It's not news. We know we need to do it. And we recognize in our lives the lack of love, the selfishness, and the apathy that gets in the way of loving each other, and hopefully we repent you know, we confess our sins and forsake them and receive forgiveness. And, and like we've been, uh, you know, hopefully we've been, uh, we're, we're trying to do better the next time. You know, we always make that promise, like, well, next time I'll do better or something like that. And then a week goes by and we're still in First John. And what do you know? Uh, we read that we're supposed to still love each other. It wasn't just a one-week thing. And, and we've decided we need to do better at that, but we, we haven't. And now we're 10 weeks in this Sunday into First John. And we're revisiting the same idea that we've heard since the beginning. 
love one another. I do not write to you a new commandment. Sometimes in a Bible study or a sermon, you know, there's the build-up towards the application, towards the action item on the agenda. You read the passage, you explain the passage, you get some deeper understanding of the context, stuff like that, and then, at the end, you receive the marching orders, you get the answer to the question, well, what do we do about it? At this point in our study in John, we don't have to wait to the end of any sermon before getting to the main point. We're in the first five minutes, and you already know exactly where this sermon is going to lead, because you've been here before. Here's the point. Love one another. Love one another. We're going to see how John talks about it in this specific passage, but it's the same point. We're going to get to it from a unique angle and perspective, but the main point remains the main point. Love one another. So let's start with the end. Just, Just because this will sound very familiar to you and connect the sermon with the ones you've already heard. Verse 20. In verse 20 it says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. This is the point. Now we read it in chapter 2, but we're reading it again. You don't have to wait for the end to the, to the end of the sermon for the application. The point is love, always, always, always. And now we go back to verse 7 and see how we got there this time. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Love, four times in this little phrase in one form or another. He starts by saying, Beloved, and then says, Let us love one another. Beloved, let us love. Um, Beloved, let us love. It's four words for us, uh, just two in the Greek. Basically, in in the Greek, it, it would sound like this. Loved, love. That's it. Like he can get his whole command in two words, and they're the same word, just in different, you know, like tenses. Loved, love. Let's pray. Love. Amen. You know, you you are the you're the loved ones, beloved. So now love. God has loved you. So love one another. This goes right back to the upper room, right? You picture Jesus washing feet. And he says, Do you see what I've done to you? Now go and do likewise. And it is in that framework, in that conversation where he says, This is how they're gonna know that you're attached to me. This is how they're gonna know you're my people when you behave like this. Go and do likewise. As I have loved you, so you go and love one another. You have been loved. So love. John will later flip this around and talk about Godward love, right? We have the horizontal love between you and your neighbor, uh, or you and your enemy, sometimes they're the same person, uh, or to you and the Father, your uh, vertical love. And and he's going to say, we love him because he first loved us. All of your external expressive loves uh, begin as a recipient of love. You never get the first word. You're never going to get the first word. God always started loving you before you decided to love. The source is always the love we receive. The basis for our actions is the love of God. So John, the apostle, the elder, in telling his church to love each other, he reminds them first that they are loved. They're not asking to go and invent something. Like, what does what being loved even look like? You know, you don't have to reinvent this wheel. Uh, God loved you. You are loved. You know what it's like. They're loved by God and they are loved by John. Now, I think he's really on to something important here. 
which is easy to say when you believe in the inspired word of God. Uh, but John knows, just like you do, that if people would start loving each other, a lot of problems would be solved. We get that. We know that. That's not news. And John is a very, very clear objective in writing this letter and in caring for the church. It's very clear that he wants people to love each other. And in order to achieve that goal of people loving each other, John tells the church, God loves you and I love you. It's such a grandpa message. John, the elder, right? He's like the oldest guy in the church. He's the only one that remembers Jesus. You know, by now as he's writing this, he is like a relic of a bygone era. You know, and they go like, John, like, tell us about it. And he's like, I love you. I love you. God loves you. People are like, can you complicate things? No, you cannot. No. No, this is his one message. Shouldn't these words, God loves you, I love you, shouldn't these words also be central to the messages that we preach, the message that we communicate with our words and otherwise? I'm not reducing the gospel or the whole counsel of God to a simple bumper sticker theology. That's not what I'm doing. God loves you and that's all. Well, it's not all. Obviously, it's a big book. Okay, there's more that we can learn. There's more, there's texture to this conversation. But there's also an imperative that these two things be communicated at the heart of the gospel. In other words, while the full message of redemption goes from Genesis to Revelation, you cannot communicate any part of that message without saying, God loves you. And you shouldn't communicate it in any way that expresses something other than, I love you. While the full message we want to communicate in the church and to the world is, you know, that Christ is king and that his death was sufficient and his resurrection really happened and that you were raised with him and that your sins are forgiven and that Jesus is coming back and in the meantime, we should live accordingly. You know, we want to communicate all of that. But in order to do so effectively, we must be communicating to those around us these two things. God loves you, and I do too. To address people in a way that they recognize they are beloved sets them up for the commands, for the rest of the command. Love one another. There's a right way to live. You, there's something true about you. God loves you. There's a job you have to do love one another. The job is based on the identity given to you by your loving father. Now the rest of verse 7 brings us back to this sort of chicken and egg idea that John likes to use. He says, Every, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We've seen already in John that loving each other and especially loving the least of these is a way of knowing God. You know, in, in this passage where he says, no one has seen God, and he says, but we've seen Jesus, he's taking you on a little journey here. He's saying, you can't see God with your eyes, but God showed himself to us in his son, Jesus, and the primary characteristic of his son was love, and now we continue to show the invisible attributes of God by loving one another. You are what makes invisible top-shelf theology accessible and visible and tangible to the world. So we, we've already seen in John that loving the least of these, loving people is a way of knowing God. As you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Loving people will also result in a further knowledge of God. If you are feeling your faith falter and you think church isn't doing it for you anymore, and it's been a while since you've sensed the presence 
of the Spirit of God, perhaps. This is my, this is my two cents, okay? Here's my advice. Sacrifice yourself, your time, your money, and whatever else you have for another person. That's how, you, that's how you get it back, so to speak. Pray about how God would have you do that. Give generously. Serve humbly, sacrificially. Christ meets you there. But we know that this goes both ways. Again, the chicken and egg thing with John. And the love that you have for your brother is the result of knowing God. You will meet God when you love your brother, but you can only love your brother if you've met with God. <laughs> The, the, the love that you have for another person is fundamentally the result of a new birth. And the one who loves is born of God. And as Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is a, a beautiful truth. It's a, it's a compounding truth. You know God and he gives you love. Uh, Romans says that the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into your heart. It's a gift that you receive. And as you love people, then you know God more. And the more you know God, the more you love people. And the more you express that love for people, and it would, you see where this is going. Compounding interest, right? Best invest investments you can make. But the opposite is also true. If you don't love, he says, you don't, you don't know God. You can't know God. You can't study your way to healthy theology. You can't. You have to love people in order to know God. You have to, because God is love. In verse 8, it says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's a sobering diagnostic test, isn't it? This is a mirror that can be hard to look into sometimes. If you don't love, you don't know God. Full stop. Please let this hit your heart in the way it's intended. Because the question, you know, the, the underlying question that could be asked is, like, well, do you know God? Do you know God? Someone comes up to you, okay? One of these enthusiastic evangelist types. And they go up to you and they say, do you know God? And you want to say yes real quick so you can just cut the sales pitch short, right? I know you guys. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, I'm already, I'm, I'm already a Christian and I'm saved and I go to church and I, I know God. And you, you're fully convinced in your own mind that that is the case. But if they go up to you and be like, so do you, do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you love people? Like, can I tell by looking at you, by seeing your life? Do you love people? Like, I almost, I almost don't want to answer. The, but the, the question is the same question. You know, if you, if you answer no to the second question, then you lied about the first question. If you don't love, you don't know God. Um, now look at this. This is the most famous of biblical statements, right? God is love. Right up there with judge not. Okay, it's, it's that, that same kind of category. It's a, and this is not said as a comprehensive theology, but it is a gold standard of your faith. Let me say that another way. The reason John says God is love is not to teach people a formula for understanding everything there is to know about theology. The reason that John says God is love is to prove to the church and the imposters within it that it is impossible for you to have fellowship with God while you are walking in hatred and apathy towards your brother. It is impossible to know God and hate your brother. 
That's why John says God is love. I say this because one phrase, this one phrase, God is love, has been misused, as you're aware, I'm sure, by people, you know, in order to dismiss biblical theology about God, usually theology connecting uh, justice and even wrath. Now, it's true, absolutely true, that love is more essential to who God is because he has never, uh, excuse me, because he has been forever eternally existing in love. Well, wrath and judgment may be, you know, temporal out, out uh, expressions of that love as we see it in time and space and all that. Love, it never says God is wrath. It says God is love. So his love is expressed towards the horrors of sin in rather violent ways. Um, but sin is not eternal. Sin is not forever. Uh, yeah, praise the Lord. The Trinity is eternal and forever. Love is eternal and forever in the form of the Godhead. Now, the corrective measures against sin are not. So, you know, love is essential to who God is. The Bible never says God is wrath. However, it would be wrong to take this phrase, God is love, and then say, well, God would never do this or that because that doesn't feel loving to me because my God, the God I worship, is a God of love. So he wouldn't do the things that the God of the Bible does. Well, uh, we could just skip forward to the end of chapter 5 and see John's sign-off, which is keep yourself from idols because you just made one. Um, or we could see the context of this phrase, God is love, and see what is he really saying. You know, you can't go to this phrase, God is love, and then say, well, God would never demand allegiance. God would never contradict me and what I want to do because he wants me to be happy. After all, God is love. That obviously shows a horrendous misunderstanding of what love is, but also just takes the phrase God is love out of its original context that we find, where we find it here in 1 John. The phrase God is love does teach us something about God, that love is an essential part of who he is. But again, that is not why it was written in the sentence where we find it here in John. When it's lifted out of the sentence that we find, and when it's lifted out of its context, God is love can dissolve into a sort of pantheistic mush that might as well be love is God. Right? It's an equal sign, is is neon. So love, love is God. That's not what John teaches. He says that love, uh, that the love that is so essential to who God is, that, that love that is so central to his being that you cannot remove love from God, it's so central to God that it would re be ridiculous for you to live an unloving life and then pretend to know that, pretend that you do know God. That's the point that he is making. And this kind of love, the love that is, cent is a central characteristic of God and describes our relationship with him and even our identity now, as he calls us beloved, it's who you are. And, and in a way, it, it, it describes our very purpose in life, beloved, if you've love, loving others, loving God. This is, this is what we're called to. That love is described for us exactly as you would expect as a Bible-believing Christian. It is described by the cross. When you say God is love, you had better follow up. Whatever you believe about that little phrase, God is love, follow that up with thoughts about crucifixion to make sure you're thinking rightly. Because that's what John does. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifest towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. 
And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Again, you see where he's driving. He's driving at getting you to love people, not for you to excuse doctrine because God must be loving. Now, this, this is good stuff. God is love, and he showed us what that means. He showed his love by sending his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That was the great big theology word we looked at a couple months ago, right? It means a sacrifice for sin that is made in order to restore relationship between offended parties. That's Jesus. He does that. It's the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And John says, if that's how God loves us, if that's what we mean when we say God is love, shouldn't we love each, other's, love each other in the same way? The answer is yes. And of course, we know the part that's implied here. We're supposed to love other people in the same way that Jesus loves us. Sacrificially. We love each other excruciatingly, excruce, out of the cross. This is hard and it's beautiful. God loved us. Now we can live, as verse 9 says, through him. We live through Jesus. Now this is really good news because I doubt any of us can fully realize what, this mean, what all this means. Uh, but, but we have to acknowledge that because of his love for us, because of his love given to us, it is in him uh, that we live and move and have our being. And again, do we, do we get that? No, probably not. But we know we need it. You know, we, we, can, we can come to the conclusion uh, that it looks like sacrificial love, living the life of Christ, living, with, living in Jesus, moving in Jesus, having our being in Jesus, looks like loving each other. And, and we, can, we can see where John is taking us here that if your life looks like that, then people see what would otherwise be invisible. These are deep mysteries here for us to ponder. In verse 12, it says, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit, of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Let's connect the dots here. You are loved. He calls you beloved. You need to love. Loved? Love. You need to love in the same way that you've been loved. God is love, but God is also invisible. Verse 12. In Timothy, it says that he dwells in unapproachable light. Right? You, you recall um, Moses saying, show me your glory. And he says, no, 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 no. No one can see me and live. Okay, God cannot be seen. God is spirit. But love can be seen. And love is shown. It is shown to you in Jesus. You wouldn't know God without Jesus. No one comes to the Father but, but, but through Him. So you, love is shown to you in Jesus, and Jesus' love, the love of God, is shown through you to others. As He abides in us, as He lives in us, makes His home with us, then we show what is otherwise invisible, the very character and nature of God Himself. God loves you, and He lives in you, 
in part so that he can love through you. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we have to acknowledge that Jesus has already told us the kingdom of God is among you. He's already told us this is the will of the Father, that you believe in me. That's the will. And we've seen this, that this walk of faith in God, this knowing God is expressed in part by our love for those around us. When we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we breathe the silent prayer in between those requests of help me love people. I mean, that shows up later in the prayer a little bit, right? As we forgive those who trespass against us. Help me love people. Something else worth noting in this passage that also further explains the essential quality of love, both in God and his church, is the uh, Trinitarian language in the passage I just read. Did you notice that all three members of the Trinity are mentioned here in one breath, or one, I don't know, dip of the pen in this case? God is invisible, but he's shown in his Son and has now given us his Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. This is not incidental. It's actually fairly central to John's greater point. The point, you'll remember and hopefully never forget, is that we must love because God is love. That statement is best understood by the Trinity. In fact, while the mystery of our three-in-one God cannot be fully understood or explained, every metaphor fails or, or at best does a bad job of explaining it, at worst just makes you a heretic like that. Um, it, the Trinity can't be understood, but it can perhaps best be addressed in terms of this small phrase in First John, God is love. Love demands an object. It's not a warm feeling you get by yourself. Love is expressed. And if love is an essential characteristic about God, something that is true in his very essence and his very nature, then God has always been love. He is eternal, without beginning or end. He is immutable, meaning he does not mutate, he's unchanging, Never, uh, which begs the question, before you showed up, who did God love? Angels? No. He had to make them too, from scratch. Okay? Angels aren't eternal. It wasn't them. God, in his essence, is love. And you would be on the right track to say, well, he loved himself. But if, if God is one without Trinity, one person, not three, then self-love is indistinguishable from narcissism. And God's self-love would not be the healthy love that we are called to imitate. It wouldn't be outward at all. It would only be inward. It would be a snake eating its own tail. God, from eternity past, existed in perfect, unbroken love with himself as a triune being, the Father forever and ever loving the Son, the Spirit between them, ever loving them both, each member giving and receiving love to the other forever. I wonder if when Peter says that we have become partakers of the divine nature Does he not have something like this in mind? The divine nature is eternal, unbroken, selfless love. And you are partakers in that. John even says that the love of God is perfected in you. Meaning God loving you 
is his mwah, chef's kiss version of love. It's like, ah, it's beautiful. The way I love them, ah, perfect. Perfect love. And that perfect love casts out fear. Getting ahead of ourselves, aren't we? It's here as John ushers his church into this place of selfless love for one another. He, he, um, he bases it primarily on the love that God has had for us. But there's that hint of love even beyond that. Even before you existed, even if you had never existed, God would still be love. If the universe had never been created, God would still be love. And now that the universe does exist and you have been placed in it and created intentionally, on purpose, and fashioned lovingly by the very hand of God, He has shown you what that eternal love looks like through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And He has chosen you to channel that love to make the invisible visible to reveal to the world and to his church through your own selfless, selfless actions what this love looks like. And, and by that, what God himself looks like. Wow. Guys, I hope this isn't new, but I hope you're seeing that it's good. God loves. He is love. He calls you to love. His love for us leads us to love each other. And in the next verses, we're going to see that it gives us confidence in both this life and the next. Verse 17, God has been perfected among us in, sorry, love has been perfected in, among us in this way, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. So much good stuff. As he is, so are we in the world? What does that mean? Keep it in the context. <laughs> what is he? He's already said what God is. God is love. What does that look like? It looks like crucifixion. As we take up our cross and follow Jesus, not just to heaven, but to the hurting people here on earth, we are like him. And it's that kind of life, the life of humility, of sacrifice, of laying down your life for the brethren, of taking on the form of a bondservant. That life will give you confidence for your place in the next. Humble servants who follow Jesus serve out of love, not fear. We wash feet because we are confident that this is the kind of thing that Jesus is crazy about. And I like all the things he likes. We wash feet because we're confident that this is what closeness with Jesus is. And if being close with Him in love is what this life is like, then being close with Him in love is what it's going to look like when this life is over. As you draw near to God, He draws near to you. And this eliminates any sort of fear of ever, ever being separated from Him. John says there is no fear in love. Now here's another one of those one-liners that can easily be misused and misunderstood. You might take this, this verse right uh, to a sort of Pollyanna sunshine and rainbows all the time kind of Christianity, right? There are people that confuse caution and wisdom with fear, and that can be hard because there's certainly the potential for overlap there. But this verse is not really about any of that. It's not about the world out there being a scary place and how you shouldn't be afraid, though there's certainly more than enough verses uh, uh, about that in the Psalms elsewhere. Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. Okay, you can, you can find that text. This just isn't it. This verse is talking about the fear of the day of judgment. 
That's what's mentioned in verse 17. It's talking about the fear of death and what's next. It's the fear of standing before the throne of God to give an account of your life. And, and before you just belittle that kind of fear and say, oh, grace alone, faith alone, I'm fine, I'm good, it's okay. Let's remember that this day of judgment is coming and it's more real than anything you've experienced in this life. And the church, through most of its existence, has taken that uh, with a healthy dose of reverence. And Hebrews 4.13, it says in no uncertain terms, right, that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Accounting will happen. Paul in Romans 14, 12, he says, So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God, each one individually. No one else will answer for you. You will answer for you. Jesus says we'll give an account of every idle word. Hebrews 13 says that, false le uh, sorry, that church leaders will give an account for what was entrusted to them. Peter talks about false teachers who will have to give an account. This is real. Paul talks about a day when we'll have our works burned. We will pass through fire, the wood, the hay, the stubble, the wasted time. That will burn up. The things of substance will be purified and polished. And I've always seen this as a mercy because we won't have to go into heaven with the garbage that we've amassed here on this earth. Praise the Lord. Um, you know, some, some people, Jude says, some will be saved as though through fire, meaning not a whole lot makes it on the other side of that furnace. And there is this kind of judgment that is even for believers. But there's also another kind of judgment, a condemnation that we pass over, that we have no need to fear. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. It's that judgment of death of separation from God that we pass over and we have no need to fear. A couple weeks back, we talked about how the heart can condemn, even when Jesus doesn't. 1 John 3.20 says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. He's, he's staying on this theme. John is continuing this thread. We know, because we've said it nearly every week, that John is writing this letter so that his readers may know that they have eternal life. He doesn't want them to fear meeting God. He doesn't want the church to fear that kind of judgment, the purifying judgment. He wants the church to fear the Lord and nothing else. So in leading them in love, showing them the love of God, showing that they are beloved and called to love, John is leading the church towards a kind of confidence that can only exist within a loving relationship. We talk about coming boldly before the throne of grace as a child to a father. We go boldly into heaven because we are his spouse and we are welcomed into his presence. The one who is afraid of that after all is said and done, they, they will meet with God and he will look at them with disappointment and say, no, I, this was, I, I've been welcoming you the whole time. Um, but there's still those who expect to meet with God and for him to have another kind of disappointment and say, no, I don't want you here. Well, that person that thinks that's coming has not understood the love of God. And, and you can believe in a holy God who will burn away your sin and still know that He is doing this because He loves you. And you can go to Him trusting Him to take care of what needs to be taken care of. There's a line in one of the Narnia books um, where the character, when encountering the, the lion, the Christ figure, he says, I would rather be eaten by Him than fed by anyone else. 
Yes, I think of that often. I'm not afraid to go to Jesus because I have seen the love that God has for me in Jesus. I'm not afraid to go to Jesus even if there's fire that burns on the way because I can trust him with that. I can trust him to burn away what needs to be burned. We don't fear death because we know that God waits for us on the other side of death. This is how powerful love is. This is how we can say precious in the sight of the Lord of the death of his saints. This is how we can believe Song of Songs 8, 6 as love is as strong as death. As strong as death, permanent and irreversible. Life-changing, life-ending. This is clearly the way God loves us. The cross declares it to be so. And our passage today ends with this statement, you know, we love him because he first loved us. He laid down his life for us, showing us love. And because of that permanent, irreversible, death-strength love, we can turn to God and say, I love you too, and have it not be a lie. Man cannot say to God, I love you, and mean it without a miracle happening first. He has to change our hearts. But he has. And because he has done so, we can turn to him and say, I love you. God's love to us is that miracle that enables us to love And so now we can walk in love. We can love each other. We can love the world. Jesus did. We can love the church with all its problems. And we can do this because Christ has shown us love and given us love. So let us walk in this love, loving the God who loves us, loving the church that he died for, loving the world that he came to save. Let's pray. Jesus, we can't get enough of you. We can't get enough of this. Uh, we, we know that your, your love for us is great. Um, we don't want to be careless of it. We don't, wanna, don't want to be people who neglect so great a salvation. We want to enter into this relationship of love with you, and we want to love well. So Holy Spirit, continue your work in us, pouring out the love of God into our hearts. Call us to specific acts of humble, sacrificial servanthood so that we can meet you there when we wash feet. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And let us run this race well that you've set before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and stand.